Amen. What a great song. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We've had some good music tonight. I've enjoyed it. Oh, amen. Paul enjoyed it. Amen. I enjoyed it. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord today. Let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I always, I like music. I always have and enjoyed the music tonight and always enjoyed the music. Matthew 17. Think about that song they just sang. Did you catch that last verse? At the end of time, standing before his presence, the throne of grace, and millions of angels falling down and singing holy to the Lord. And then you'll lift your voice and you'll join in the chorus. Man, what a day. What a time that's going to be. Incredible. Just the picture it painted in my mind. And uh, we worry about so many things. But you say, well, I, don't, I don't know if I like those choruses that repeat. They're going to sing holy, holy, holy night and day, 24 hours around the throne. Angels flying back and forth. That's all they do all day. Holy, holy, holy. You better get used to that song. Amen. And by the way, God doesn't need to be reminded he's holy. He's just letting us know, you be careful when you step on here because this is holy ground. You're getting near the throne. This is the presence of God. And man, I'm, I can't wait. I preached a message one time years ago and, and somebody had, had a bunch of uh, questions and, and uh, they were foolish questions. You know, the Bible says avoid foolish questions and genealogies and all the rest. And there were these silly little questions, and he gave me this list, and, and he says, could you, could you put these in a message and answer them? And, and uh, it was stuff like, did Adam have a belly button and stuff like that? You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, that kind of stuff. And, and, and so I said, well, uh, uh, let me look at your list, and I took it home. And, and so I preached the message about the throne of God. And at the end, I said, Here, here's your conclusion to your questions. Bring your list with you. And when you're standing in his presence, none of that will matter. None of that will matter. You'll just throw all your questions away and fall on your face. You'll know him and be known. Wonderful, wonderful time in his presence. I can't wait. Oh, man, that's going to be wonderful. Thank you. I like that song. And the Judge Quartet, that was good. Tony's, man, those old hymns about the cross. Mm. It's just something about them, you know, and, and I like the, 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 some of the, the newer songs we sang tonight, but sometimes those old hymns, they got something, you know, they're good. Amen. Matthew 17, I better get preaching or I'm going to start singing again. Matthew chapter 17, and, and um, look at verse 14 with me. Matthew chapter, I'm just simply called the message Revelations. Revelations. It's not the Revelation, the end of the Bible book that we see that John wrote, but Revelations is just things that are revealed to us. I just want to share with you four things that are revealed in this passage of Scripture. Revelations about sinners, revelations about saints, revelations about the Savior, and revelations about the spiritual life. I think we'll draw some of those principles out tonight, and I want you to just follow along with me. Revelation chapter, or sorry, Matthew chapter 17, my title is Revelations, Matthew chapter 17, and look at verse 14, and it really is a sad, sad story until they met Jesus. Amen? There's a lot of sad stories until you meet Jesus. There's a lot of sad cases out there, but then they met Jesus. And things become very different once you know Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, the Bible says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic 
Anybody ever said that about your teenage kids? And sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to the disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to understand the word of God tonight. Thank you for the time that we have spent worshiping you, Lord, to allow us, Lord, to sing your praises, mortal man, to sing the glory of God. What an amazing privilege. But Lord, it doesn't mean a thing if you're not pleased with it. So I pray that you just accept our meager gift and Lord, be honored and praised tonight. Father, bless our time in your word. May the Holy Spirit of God help us and teach us. Lord, I need your help, and I pray that you might fill me with your Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think about this man who brought his son, and I think many of us as parents have gone through times in our lives where we thought we would trade places with our child. Uh, many years ago, and, and, and I'm, I'm very thankful, to, to my knowledge, I, I don't believe any of our children ever had a broken bone. Uh, that's a blessing, you know. Uh, I don't know that any of them have had any major illnesses. I, not, not that I can say that. They've never, had, they've never had a surgery, never had to have an operation or anything like that. And I'm thankful for all of that. And, and we've gone through ups and downs, and there's been some things that have happened. And, and uh, you know, like I told you a couple weeks, my daughter had a miscarriage, and that was hard. And we, under, and we, and we hurt when our children hurt. But I, I was re- reading this passage, and... I may not compare, but I recall the time several years ago we came to church and had choir practice and such, and and, uh, choir practice had just finished up, and I was in my office, and uh, Wanda Brown, Wanda's here somewhere, right there. I forgot about that you were the culprit. Wanda Brown had given us a ping pong table that we used in the academy at lunchtime and such, and it was a heavy beast. It was a, kind of a slate type of table, very, very heavy. And it went up, folded up in the air like this, and had little clips on the sides, and it was all folded up. And my boys, Brendan and Austin, after choir practice, went down, and they were going to play some ping pong. And they opened up that thing, and it was too heavy for Austin. He was still a pretty little guy, and he let go of that thing, and it came down, and Brendan was pulling the table out, and like a guillotine, it came across his fingers. And it took the finger off from his last knuckle on his pointer finger right it was hanging by just a little piece of skin and that kind of nasty isn't it ladies and I heard a scream in my office I ran down the hall and here he come wrapped in a something and we grabbed some towels and we wrapped it up and I got him in the car and raced to the hospital with him and I remember in the car I didn't know what was wrong necessarily other than he'd cut his finger I didn't know it was just hanging there and it was just by a little piece of skin hanging below his hand. And I was praying, God, help my boy. 
God help my boy. I didn't like to see him in all that pain. All that hurt, it was hard to watch. Now the lady at the hospital was masterful. And her and a young nurse and an intern, young man that was an intern, they rebuilt that finger. They put it all back together while he was on morphine. And as a matter of fact, we went to the hand and upper limb clinic in London and took him there a couple times. And they said, I don't know who fixed this, but they did a masterful job. We normally get things from emergency rooms and they're mangled messes. But this was done very well. They said, if you're going to cut your finger off, they said a millimeter either way would have crushed bone, but it went right through the knuckle. And that was the saving grace. And they were able to put it all back together and fix it. And I've been in that hospital several times visiting other people, and I saw that doctor, and I said, I want you to know that years ago you put my son's finger back together, and as a matter of fact, he's a Mountie today, and he won the cross pistols because he was able to use his trigger finger. He was one of only two in his class that won the cross pistol. I said, thank you. And she said, she just kind of sunk, and she says, you know, when people leave here, we don't know what happens to them. We're in the emergency room. We're not getting to check them out of the hospital. We're either sending them upstairs or somewhere to a trauma center in Hamilton or somewhere. Thank you for telling us we did a good job. When I read this passage, my mind went back to that, and I thought how a father sometimes feels when their children are hurting. Moms, you know how you're feeling when your children are hurting. A helpless situation. And here was a man that brought his son to the Lord Jesus Christ after having already brought him to the disciples. And he says, This Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water, and I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. I want you tonight, as we work our way through these few verses of Scripture, to understand some revelations. And I've already shared those four with you, and perhaps you jotted them down quickly, but let me give them to you again. Number one, revelations about sinners. We see some things about the common man here. And by the way, when I say sinners, I'm not picking on this son and I'm not pointing at the father. I'm a sinner just like anybody else. We're all sinners. And I want you to notice, first of all, when we think about this uh, sinner, number one, they face Satan's darts. This young man was under attack, wasn't he? And I want to say this, by the way, I believe that we are all under attack. The Bible says the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If we were to turn to the other passages of Scripture that echo this same uh, chapter, we could look in the book of Mark and we could look in the book of John, and both of them say that he had a spirit. Matthew tells us he was lunatic. He was lunatic because he had a dumb spirit. The Bible says in the book of Mark that the father identified it as a dumb spirit and then Jesus Christ called out a deaf and dumb spirit in in the book of John. So we know that this man had a spiritual problem. The Bible says he was possessed by demons and so we know that he was under Satan's attack. But let me say this, when you are not saved, you lack spiritual armor. That's the difference. Maybe tonight you are saved. You say, Pastor, I just can't seem to get past all these spiritual attacks. The devil's attacking me. Listen, let me say this. The Bible says there's something you have called the shield of faith. 
And that was what was lacking in this case. You have a breastplate of righteousness and you have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And this young man was lacking the helmet of salvation. He was a spiritual, uh, in a spiritual mess because he did not have the armor of God. He was not saved. And the Bible says he was a lunatic. We see, first of all, the father's concern. The father's concern. He says, I'm worried about my son. And so I brought him to your disciples, and now I bring him to you, Jesus. He is a lunatic. The word lunatic is very interesting. It literally means moonstruck. Luna, moon. You see, way back in, in the ancient days, and they, they used to believe that mental illness and demonic possession and all those things were from the effects of the moon. How many of you have ever used that expression? You see kind of things going crazy. You say, oh, it must be a full moon tonight. That goes back centuries. I, I was in an emergency room one night, and the place was hopping. And one of the nurses, I heard her say, boy, it must be a full moon tonight. And there was. And I don't know if there is some sort of gravitational pull or different effect on the body. I have no idea. Uh, but, uh, but I know this, that the Bible uses the word lunatic, and it means moonstruck. But it was because of these demons. And the father was concerned for his son. I find it interesting that this boy could not identify his problem for himself. That it took somebody else. I want you to hold on to that thought for a minute as we move through and we'll come back to it. They face Satan's darts. We see the father's concern. We also see the father's complaint. The Bible says he is sore vexed for oft times he falls into the fire and oft into the water. The father was expressing how serious this situation is. Let me say this. When the devil gets a hold of a life, the Bible, the Bible doesn't say he's trying to bring you into bondage. The Bible says he's a murderer. He's trying to destroy you. He could kill you if he would. Years ago, I heard of a young man that I went to Bible college with who jumped off a parking garage and took his own life. I don't know what it was that caused him to despair so deeply. I don't know what it was that made him think his life was not worth living, but I do know this, the devil was behind it because Satan is a murderer and he's a liar. And he put some heart, something into the heart and thoughts of that man that Caused him to take his life. The father is saying that this is such a terrible situation that only the Lord could help. And so we see that they face Satan's darts, but we see secondly that they fumble in spiritual darkness. I want you to notice his father's discernment. He was able to see what his son could not. You know, a lot of times we see people out fumbling in spiritual darkness, don't we? I suppose you're probably here tonight and you're all thinking, I, I know somebody. I've got a neighbor, I've got a friend, I've got a family member, I've got somebody whose life is unraveling and somebody who's maybe addicted to drugs or an alcohol or just so lost in their sins that they, they can't seem to ever find the right way and, and God is not in their life and not blessing their life and boy, they're just in a mess and, and you say, so what do I do? How can I help them? You do what this father did, you bring them to Jesus. We point them to the Savior who can help them. The father had some discernment, so they fumble in spiritual dark, dark, darkness, and we notice the father's discernment, but we also notice the father's determination. He decided first, I, I'll take him to the disciples, but when that didn't work, he didn't give up. He said, I must get to Christ. I must get to Christ. Can I, can I tell you tonight that 
I think sometimes we are well-meaning when we say, I need to get somebody to church. But you do far better getting them to Christ. I want to get them with other believers, and I want to invite them to a fellowship. And and Don't get me wrong, I think those are important things. I think it's good for unsaved people to get into a group of saved people and enjoy. uh, They'll find out what it's like to have a barbecue without booze. They'll find out what it's like to, to have some fellowship and some fun without dirty talk. And I think it's important that we, we invite people into our fellowship and try to help them along and encourage them. But friends, the far greater benefit is to get them to Christ. The disciples could not help this man because of their unbelief, but Christ changed his life. So we see the fumble in spiritual darkness. Let me notice the second thing. We see the revelations about the sinner, but notice revelations about the saints. Verse 16. And I brought him to thy disciples. They're supposed to be saints, right? And they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. One of the sad realities of the Christian life is that we're often limited by the sin of pride. The Lord uses the word faithless here. Faithless. Now understand this, where we are in the history of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry on earth. By this point in the Lord's ministry, he had already given the disciples authority over demons, and they had cast out demons before. But now when they could not, Jesus says, you are faithless. Because their pride took over. You see, the moment we take our eyes off Christ and we're no longer trusting in him for his power, we are trusting in ourselves, and that's pride. Somehow they had dropped the ball here. Somehow they thought, well, we've cast out demons before. There's nothing to it. And they looked at that young boy and they said, come out of him. And nothing happened. Because they didn't do it in the name of Christ. They were faithless. Something had changed and the Lord said, there's a problem with pride. Notice verse 20, if you will. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remember hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. You know, so many times we claim that verse, and we say, the Lord said, if I just have the faith, the grain of a mustard seed, God will take care of this. Here's the problem, friend. In order for God to work, we have to have faith in God of the Bible. And so well, that's kind of common sense, isn't it? No, 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 Listen. A lot of times when we put faith in something, it's not the God of the Bible. It's a God of our own making. It's a God, God so we, we, we make up some deadline for God and say, well, I believe that God's going to heal me by July 1st. Can you show me in the Bible where God says that? That's faithlessness. That's the next word he used. He says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. We see the sin of pride, but we see also the sin of perverseness. Perverseness is to depart from the ways of God. Think about that. We, we've used the word perverse in our day or pervert, and, and it means to depart from what is natural and right and good and to go in the opposite direction. And so we say, well, I believe, I believe that God is going to, t- uh, you know, I, I just believe it. I, I've prayed and I believe that God's going to give me a million dollars. Not if God doesn't want to. 
Can you prove that with scripture? Here's what my Bible says. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory, not all your wants and desires. We need to be very careful that we don't make up some God. Here's what happens. We begin to doubt and we begin to fear because we pray and we ask God for things that are not in his will. The Bible puts it this way in the book of James. We pray and we have not because we seek to consume it on our own lusts. You've created a God that doesn't exist. We have to pray to the God of the Bible. And we have to have faith in him because if not, and that's what the Lord is saying to this, this, the disciples. He says, oh, faithless and perverse. He says, you've made up a God that doesn't exist. You've taken my will, what is right and what is good, and you've twisted it and turned it, and you've gone in your own direction. And you think you have some sort of power in your life, and you don't because you're doing it without me. Remember the song we sang this morning? We just learned it. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. There was a problem with their faith, and it was perverse in their faith. So we see the revelation about the saints. They were limited by the sin of pride, and they were limited by the sin of perverseness. And the result was they had no spiritual power. But Then we see the revelations about the Savior. Hey, let me ask you this. Aren't you glad that God sometimes works in spite of us? The disciples had failed. They got ahead of steam and thought they were something special, and they thought they could step out, and God said, you did it without faith, and you perverted the plan of God. He said, but I'm going to work anyway. And we see, first of all, he responds in mercy. Notice verse 15 says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. By the way, when we are living a faithless and perverse faith or lifestyle, the Lord Jesus Christ questions even how long he wants to be around us. How long shall I be with you? But notice that God responds in mercy. He healed the boy. He cast out the demon, the Bible says in verse 18. He rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. But I, I want to say that the victory happened way back when, in verse 17, where Jesus says, bring him hither. Bring him hither. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can go boldly to the throne of grace? Back in those days, it was a very different type of society, and they waited to be invited into the presence of a king. And this man went, and he laid out his plea, and he said, and Jesus says, bring him. Bring him to me. But you know that invitation is repeated over and over in the Bible. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible constantly reaffirms that Christ wants us to come to him, that we can go boldly to the throne of grace. We don't have to wait for an invitation. We can go to Christ. And he delights in showing us mercy. He responds in mercy. Psalm chapter 118, every single verse ends like this. His mercy endureth forever. John 6, 37, to him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. We see more about the Savior revealed in his life. First, he responds in mercy. Second, he rebukes in mercy. 
Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the devil. In other words, he takes in, in just in a very broad application of this, of this passage, the Lord could take care of any need in your life. He rebukes the devourer. He rebukes the devil. He takes care of anything that is hurting us. Just like that day I was driving to the hospital, I wish I could have traded places with my son. I wish I could take the hurt of my daughter. But we can't. But the Lord Jesus Christ in a moment says, I will bear your burden. He will pour out the balm of Gilead and mend our broken hearts. And so he responded in mercy and he rebuked that which hurt in mercy and he restores in mercy. The child was cured from that very hour. Let me give you this last revelation, and I want you to really dwell on this. I was trying to use the rest to introduce it very quickly, this, this single thought. Some revelations about the spiritual life, and there's two I want to share with you. Number one, unbelieving Christian living is perverse. It's not the plan of God to walk around faithless and perverse. The Lord Jesus Christ is wringing his hands and thinking, how long shall I be with you? How long do I have to put up with this nonsense? He's disgusted by it. It's funny how we, as believers, will cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, please forgive me, wash me in the blood of the Lamb and make me white as snow and make me fit for heaven. And We will trust God with our eternal life But then in our daily walk, we struggle just trusting him with little things. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's promised to supply all your needs. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Boy, sometimes we're just listening to the devil. As he casts doubt upon our faith time and time again, unbelieving Christian living is perverse. It is a departure from God's plan for your life. And to call ourselves Christians and not live by faith is to pervert God's way. We wonder why we have no power. We wonder why we live in fear. We make up rules for God that do not exist in the Bible, and we say, well, that's what I'm going to believe. I'm going to name it, and I'm going to claim it. That word of faith crowd, listen, uh, that's as as heretical as anything you'll ever find. Say three Hail Marys, and you'll be forgiven. Show me that in the Word of God. That's not Bible. That's not God. That is misplaced faith. That is faithless and perverse. And the disciples lived that way for this very moment, and they had absolutely zero spiritual power. They could not help this boy. I don't know about you, but when, when, when something like this comes into my family, I want to be able to help. I want to know that when I go to the altar to pray, when I, when I ask God to help one of my children or my wife or my family, and I'm beseeching the throne of grace, I want to know that he's going to hear because I, I am not faithless and I'm not perverse and I'm not twisting the will of God. I'm just pleading and begging God to do what he will. Not asking him to go against his will, but simply trusting that he knows what's best for me. So faithless living, unbelieving Christian living is perverse. And here's the second thing I want you to get. 
unrelenting Christian living is powerful. Unrelenting, here's what the word means. I picked it on purpose for this very reason. Sticking to a purpose or course of action in spite of reason, arguments, or persuasion. In other words, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm going to build my life upon the word of God. I'm going to put my feet firmly upon the rock of my salvation, Jesus Christ. And The Bible says, he that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a man that buildeth his house upon a rock, and the storm beateth. And that house, you know the story, stood firm. Because we have the God of the Bible. We have Jehovah, Almighty God. We have, uh, uh, he is our great supplier. He is, he, ta- he is our great physician. He is wonderful. He is counselor. He is prince of peace. Anything we need can be met by our God. We don't need to make up some God or pray for something that's not in line with God's word. But if we will just stay the course and not be persuaded by a lost and dying world that we are foolish. uh, Listen, you cannot be dissuaded by anything. You believe in Christ Almighty and God will take care of you. It's powerful living. But you have to believe. Cannot twist the will of God. Notice something at the end of this passage tonight, verse 20. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. The disciples asked, why couldn't we cast them out? He said, because of your unbelief. And I believe they were probably saying in my heart, but we did believe. We've done it before. We've cast out demons. We believe we could do it again, so we tried. We wouldn't have tried if we didn't believe we could do it. That's not what the Lord was saying. He was saying you put your faith in the wrong thing. You were putting your faith in yourself, your works, your own abilities, but you weren't believing me. And notice what he says. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove thence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now look at next, howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. He said, well, that explains it. This man brought this child to the, Lord, uh, to the disciples, and they had not had the time to pray and fast. Maybe they even knew it. Maybe Peter said to John or Andrew or somebody, he said, well, you know, this is, a, this is a tough case, and normally we'd have to pray and fast about this, but uh, there's no time for that. This demon, the Bible says in other chapters, was tearing the boy. The father admitted that sometimes he'd roll in a fire and be thrown into the water in a ditch. This is a dire case, and perhaps we should just go ahead and call out this demon. But you'll notice when they brought the boy to Jesus, he called him out. Now let me ask you, when did Jesus have time to pray and fast? Do you think that the Lord Jesus Christ commanded something that was contrary to his own nature? No. Here's what I'm saying. The Lord Jesus Christ lived his life in spiritual readiness. He said, well, did he pray and fast? He probably prayed and fasted regularly. He was always walking with the Father. How many times in the Bible do we see that he stole away into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray? 
I, I remember uh, reading a passage in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I'm trying to, I can't remember where it was. I believe it's Matthew chapter 8, but I'm not sure. And the Bible just talks about how the Lord Jesus Christ was here and he was there and he was healing and he was feeding the 5,000 and he was teaching the Beatitudes. And then the Bible says, just in one verse, he slipped away into the Garden of Gethsemane and then the next day he's back in Jerusalem. And that's all it says. He just went to the Garden of Gethsemane for the night. He said, well, maybe he pitched a tent and slept there. No, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he went there to pray. Every single time we see the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there to pray and talk to his father. That was his prayer closet. That was his special place with the Lord. I'm just, I'm just here to tell you tonight that the Lord Jesus Christ had spiritual power because he was constantly walking with God and constantly making sure that he was in spiritual preparedness. He said, oh, but he's the Messiah. He's Christ. He had a different discipline. No, no, no. Listen, understand this. He made himself flesh. To be our example. And he says in John chapter 14 that we would do greater miracles than these. And so he's saying you can have spiritual power. How did Jesus have it? He didn't have to steal away and say, well, listen, I'll come back in a couple weeks. I need to take some time to pray and fast and we'll deal with this problem. No, he was spiritually prepared and he was able to help. I learned a long time ago that on any occasion, somebody might pop in my office and say, Pastor, can I talk to you? And they lay out some bad news. Dreaded disease has happened, a breakdown in their family, something's going on. And then they look at you and say, do you got an answer for me? Oh. You have to be spiritually ready. Let me ask you, are you ready to give an answer to any man? of the hope that lieth within you. If somebody were to knock on your door today, would you be able to say, yeah, I'm happy to help. I'm ready. I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I, I've been seeking the Lord. I've been walking with God, and I'm in a place of spiritual readiness. I want to help you. Sometimes we try to pull people up, and the problem is, is when we're pulling them up, we get pulled down because we're not spiritually ready. And if you don't get anything else out of this passage tonight, get this, the Lord Jesus Christ was in a constant state of spiritual preparedness. You say, oh, did Jesus have to get, if Jesus didn't have to get spiritually prepared, he'd never go away to pray in the first place. Before the Lord went to Calvary, what did he do? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he fell on his face before his father and he prayed. The Lord is just saying to us, are we ready? You say, well, I, I want to make an impact in my community. I want to be a beacon and a lighthouse in my workplace and I want to be uh, the one that brings Christ to my family. Are you always walking with the Lord? It's easy for me to stand up here and say that. I'm going to tell you, it's hard to do, isn't it? I know it. It's not always easy. You can let your guard down real quick. But then we lack spiritual power. The disciples let their guard down for just a short time. If you were to back up in the Bible, you would find that, man, they had just come off a spiritual high. How many of you know at the bottom of every mountain, it seems like the devil's waiting down there? You come off that spiritual high. You read your Bible and you'll find that up until this passage of Scripture, they were just 
on fire for God and doing all kinds of great things, but then they let their guard down and they lost their spiritual power. But the Lord Jesus was ready. Let it be a lesson to us that we can be a help, but we have to walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to be unrelenting in our pursuit of you. Not to be dissuaded, not to be distracted, but to follow you with all of our hearts. Father, thank you for this group that's gathered here tonight, and thank you, Lord, for their love of you. And Lord, I really enjoyed hearing them worship tonight and listening to them sing. I pray, Lord, that... I preach this passage tonight because it challenged me. I pray that they might be challenged too. God, speak to our hearts and help us, Lord, to always walk. I, I know that tomorrow morning, most people in this room are going to go off into a workplace, into the world somewhere. And maybe, maybe somebody will be hurting and looking to them for answers. Maybe there'll be somebody there that's had a rough weekend at home and needs to talk. Are we spiritually ready to help them? Can we point them to Christ? Can we show them the comfort of scriptures? Maybe there's somebody who'll be there that got some bad news from a doctor. Maybe there's somebody there that's in financial ruin. Lord, whatever the case may be, we are to be the salt of the world. We are to be the light of the world. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to go out with that spiritual power that we need. And that power is not of us, but it's of Jesus Christ living in us. And I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, and the altar's open. I'll just let the piano play, and I won't say much. But if God has spoke to your heart, would you step out and come?